Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, if you would at home or wherever you are when you watch this, if you would uh, turn in your Bibles or on your device, uh, navigate to John chapter 11 and 12. We're going to be uh, discussing the triumphal entry uh, by way of the raising of Lazarus this morning. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11 and 12. Let me pause for one more word of prayer before we begin. Father, we humble ourselves before you now, before your word. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, strengthen me to preach and that you would give me clarity, that you would give me words, uh, Lord, for the sake of your name and the furtherance of your gospel. I pray these things now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Lazarus wasn't the first person that Jesus had raised from the dead which is pretty incredible when you stop and think about it. Jesus raised the widow of Nain's only son in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. And in this story, Jesus, he travels to a, a Galilean town by the name of Nain. And as he draws near to the gate of that town, he's met by a funeral procession. A young man had died and apparently he had been the only son of his mother, and tragically his mother also was a widow, so this left her almost completely alone. Jesus sees her mourning and, and, this, and her desperate plight, and he has compassion on her, and he raises her son back up and, and gives him back to a delighted mother right there on, on the march to the grave. Now, even though this was done very publicly and there was a great crowd there to witness it, it was still done sort of out in the sticks, if you know what I mean. It was in lower Galilee, away from the seat of power in Jerusalem. And I suppose it must have been easier to dismiss because the young man had just died that very day. Perhaps he hadn't really died, maybe just been revived, right? It could be dismissed in this way. Another incident occurred when Jesus raised up Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Once again, Jesus was in Galilee, far from Jerusalem. And the girl had just passed away moments before Jesus, Jesus could get there. In fact, he was stopped by a woman to, to heal her. And you can't help but wonder if, if that woman hadn't stopped him, maybe he would have made it in time. This time, as Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, uh, he does his best to limit his exposure to the crowd. When he goes into the house, the only people he al allows in there with him are the mother and the father of, of the girl and also his inner circle of three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. Jesus raises her back up to life, gives, him, gives her back to her parents, and this time he charges them not to tell anyone. 
raising of Lazarus was different. In contrast to these other earlier miracles, the raising of Lazarus was right on the doorstep of Jerusalem. It was done to a well-known family with many Jews uh, from the city present there to see it. Jesus did it at just the right time for maximum exposure and effect, just as the required pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover was ramping up. And it was undeniably miraculous. Lazarus had been dead for four days in the grave and then only came out alive at the call of Jesus, still bound at his hands and his feet from when they carried him in there and still wrapped with the grave clothes that they had wrapped him in four days later, suddenly alive at the call of Jesus. Jesus was always trying to hold back the messianic hysteria that would arise from his miracles, especially the raising of someone from the dead. And his doing so, his holding back that hysteria, uh, reminds me of every dog that I've ever owned. I don't know about you, but it seems like almost every dog that I've ever had has been one of those dogs that that just constantly uh, tugs at the leash, right? I, 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 as I'm walking the dog, I, I tell the dog to heal and I give it a good swift tug on the leash, a good swift but benevolent tug on the leash, only to have the dog a, a few seconds later out in front of me again, straining at the leash, straining for his breath. Much of the time, Jesus was trying to rein in a certain type of messianic hysteria that always threatened to run ahead of his appointed time, his appointed hour, as if that were possible. So we often see him, as I said, sternly telling people to tell no one when he's done something amazing. And we often see him escaping to a lonely place just when the crowd is reaching sort of a critical mass where he could actually accomplish something. But with the raising of Lazarus from the dead in such a public and glorious way, right at his enemy's front doorstep, so to speak, Jesus was, in a sense, letting go of the leash and saying, okay, now is the time. The story of Lazarus demonstrates that Jesus is not only in control, but that he was also unfolding his plan in his time to lay down his life as the Lamb of God for the sins of his people. Through the, res- re- the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, Jesus unleashes both the crowds and the crucified the crucifiers, those who would crucify him. First, the crowds. Many saw and believed and ultimately wanted to make Jesus their king. Look at verse 45 uh, at the tail end of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It says that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. 
Note that the belief of the many was connected to their seeing what he did. I think for most of us, we would say that we tend to doubt something until we see it with our own eyes. These folks were, were no different from us in that respect. And I, I suspect that they, they probably had heard of Jesus. I think almost everyone had by this point. But now they had seen his glory and his power with their own eyes, and that was completely different. Remember that in this story, as Jesus stands before Lazarus's tomb and he, in faith, asks them to roll the stone away and begins to pray, he, he prays specifically that those standing around him might believe that the Father had sent him. And so this is an answer to that prayer. John says that many who had come and seen believed in him. Now, as a little side note, the, the Bible teaches that as blessed as these people were, the, the people that got to actually be there and see Lazarus come out of the tomb, as blessed as they were to be able to see that, that there are some who are more blessed than them. Later, when Jesus would rise from the dead and appear to his own disciples, he would say in John chapter 20, verse 29, He would say, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Similarly, in 1 Peter 1.8, Peter marvels at the faith of those who believe without seeing the way that Peter was able to see. Peter saw Lazarus come out of the grave. He writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We don't get to be the eyewitnesses in this case, but we have the eyewitness testimony. And Jesus says, we who believe without seeing that we are the blessed ones. So I don't want you to forget that as we, as we discuss those who believe and those who don't believe. Don't Use your lack of being able to see the, the, this kind of a miracle f- with your own eyes as an excuse for unbelief. Instead, follow the example of those who, who saw and believed in him. Join the ranks of those who believe without seeing and be blessed. Now, those who did see and did believe John tells us here in in John chapter 11 and 12 that 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 group of people would go on to to be the crowd that sweeps Jesus into Jerusalem with messianic fervor, really them and and those that they recruit swept Jesus into the city with this messianic fervor at the triumphal entry Uh, in, in just a few more verses here in the next chapter, John chapter 12 beginning in verse 12. So, If you have your Bibles there, skip ahead here. We're going to read this account together in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. It says, The next day the the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They heard it. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. That would be sort of like you and I getting an American flag and going out to a 4th of July parade. The the palm branches was a, a nationalistic symbol. 
And they were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Psalm 118, messianic psalm. And clearly the expectation here was that this is our future king. And then verse 14, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Jesus was fulfilling ancient prophecy about the Messiah, about the Christ. And even though many there were unwittingly participating in that, uh, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus did, in fact, fulfill it on that day. And, and John tells us that this miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, in particular, is what drove these people to do this. Look at verses 17 and 18 here. It says, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So this very intentional, very public raising of Lazarus from the dead at the doorstep of Jerusalem with a crowd of, of, of Jewish uh, Metropolitan Jews, they're gathered to see this raising from the dead was what ended up fueling the triumphal entry. It was very intentional on the part of Jesus. And it was precisely this kind of miracle and this kind of crowd doing this kind of thing that pushed the religious leaders' buttons so much. Through the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus unleashed the crowds. And in so doing, he unleashed the crucifiers. Verse 46, back in, let's go back to John chapter 11 here for just a moment, back to verse 46 here. We had... Uh, John said in verse 45 that there was the many who believed in Jesus after having seen what he did. But then verse 46, it says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Notice how the sum here is being contrasted with those who believed. In other words, I don't think these people were running to the Pharisees full of faith and excitement and, hey, I've got good news. Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. No, I think, the, I think they were essentially tattletailing on Jesus here to the authorities. Jesus once said in a, a parable that if you don't believe this, Moses and the prophets, if you don't believe God's written word, then what makes you think you're going to believe even if somebody rises from the dead? 
Isn't it, I mean, just step back from this for a moment and, and consider the fact that these people saw a man who had been dead for four days come out of the grave and they walked away and they didn't believe. Isn't it incredible how hard the human heart is to the revelation of God, the truth of God? Jesus said, hey, if you don't believe this, what makes you think that if you even see someone rise from the dead that you're going to believe? It's not the seeing with the eyes that you need. The truth is plain enough for you to see and believe right here in God's word. Open up the eyes of your heart and listen and hear and believe. There is little difference between hearing the truth in God's word and rejecting it and seeing the truth of God's word and rejecting it. The two are so closely related. Don't think, well, if if God would just somehow show me, then I'll believe. He's already showing you in countless ways who he is and his eternal attributes and power. And he's revealing to you from his word how you can be saved in the person of Jesus Christ. He's beckoning to you right now through this text. Hear the testimony of those who were there and believe. Believe the testimony of Jesus himself when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Number yourself with the many who could not deny what they had seen and believed. Well, there were some who did not believe and they went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then in the next few verses here, verses 47 and 48, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation When the story of this miracle in particular, of Lazarus being raised from the dead, when that story reached the Pharisees, they were so alarmed by it that they called together the Sanhedrin, the, the council of elders made up of priests and Sadducees and Pharisees and other leaders. And, and what we read here is nothing short of them freaking out. You can sort of hear their exasperation. You can hear their frustration and their fear. And what they say. They say, what are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. Amazing, isn't that? Jesus' opponents never really could deny the legitimacy of his signs and wonders, of his miracles. You can't deny a man dead for four days in the grave who's now alive. That's unanswerable. You can't deny someone who was born blind and now can see. This isn't the kind of stuff you see on TV where uh, people that are being healed are the people with the backaches or the depression, but meanwhile, the people with the wheelchairs are being uh, ushered out of the spotlight and left behind. This isn't what was going on in Jesus' ministry. Jesus' enemies knew that his miracles were legitimate. And they knew that this miracle at this time had the potential of blowing sky high. 
And they were panicking. And this, I think, clearly led to an argument, though we don't necessarily hear the other side of the argument. But in John chapter 12, the very next chapter, verse 42, we read that there were many of the authorities who did, in fact, believe in Jesus secretly, but they were too afraid to admit it for fear of being put out. And I I suppose that those who maybe believed in him secretly on this council were probably arguing along the lines of the fact that it's not right to kill an innocent man. This man, he raised someone from the dead. What, we're going to put him to, to death for that? Meanwhile, others were arguing that if the crowds amass behind him, it could be the end of everything they hold dear. By the way, ironically, by AD 70, the year 70, uh, they would lose their place and their nation anyway as a judgment that was predicted by Jesus. So the high priest steps into this panic, this argument here, and he settles the matter. I don't know if you've ever served on a a board or a leadership team or been in a meeting of, of any kind, and there often comes a moment in an argument or in a discussion where someone weighs in decisively and and sort of carries the day with their argument. And I think that was this moment here. The text says that Caiaphas, who was the high priest that fateful year, which by the way was, uh, Caiaphas was uh, among his generation, the one that held that office for the longest. Um, Other than him, that, that office was a revolving door, but he actually held the office for for quite a while. Um, and I, I think really his gravitas and his pride comes shining through in what he says here in the midst of this argument. He says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand. That's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. I think it's as plain as day to the high priest. One man, whether he did something or not, or the whole entire nation perishing. And so he makes this sort of slippery, utilitarian argument here that the good to the many justifies uh, the wrong to the one. And suddenly, I think the group finds their moral argument, their moral argument for doing something immoral, putting to death an innocent man. Jesus must be destroyed for the sake of the nation. Even though they surely knew that they were putting to death someone who had never done uh, anything worthy of death. Better to do away with one man, even a seemingly good man that the people like, than to put the whole nation at jeopardy. Maybe the people wouldn't understand, but in time they would surely thank us for making them eat their vegetables. We must be the adults here. I could just see them reasoning in this way. And and we must hold our noses to do this unpleasant thing that must be done. We must finally follow through in getting rid of Jesus. I must say, I, I think for most of these leaders that this 
fear that's expressed here of losing their place and their nation. I'm sure that was a legitimate fear, but I, I really think that, that that was just an excuse. I think underlying this concern for their, their place and their nation was a deep-seated jealousy and hatred of Jesus Christ. They wanted to get rid of him because he made them look bad. And here was a, a seemingly reasonable, noble argument for how they could do just that. And John says that when the high priest said what he said about it being better for one man to die for the people rather than the whole nation perishing, that he actually prophesied. But he did so unwittingly. His high priest was, was not a prophet in the traditional sense, but you know, God can speak through anyone, can he? And John says, look, the high priest... The nation of Israel at Passover time made the decision that it was better to sacrifice one man as the Lamb of God on behalf of the nation. And that is no coincidence, my friends. That is, that is in fact, what God had in mind all along. And what Caiaphas meant for evil, God was going to use for incredible good. Jesus, the innocent and righteous Lamb of God being sacrificed in place of God's people. He was slain so that we wouldn't have to face the wrath of God for our sins if we believe in Him. He perished so that we might not. It's at the heart of the understanding of the cross and the high priest, though he meant something quite different, actually prophesied of this in his words. This Passover, it was to be Jesus and not the people who would perish. John says that that, that pictured not only Jesus dying for the nation, but also for the gathering into one of the children of God who are scattered abroad. That refers to us. He died in my place and he died in your place too. And the story of Lazarus demonstrates that Jesus is in control in unfolding his plan. And through the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus unleashes both the crowds and therefore also the crucifiers. He rode into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday, to offer himself intentionally as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was not only in control, but he had a plan. You know, we often look at this story of Lazarus or the, the story of the triumphal entry in isolation from one another, but I think anytime you can zoom out and look at a larger piece of scripture here and see just the the magnificent beauty of, of God's plan as it unfolds and the intricacy of it. Through the highs and the lows, the, the belief and the unbelief and the crowds and the leaders and the misguided enthusiasm and the, the undercurrent of violence, all of it was according to Jesus' plan.
And I can guarantee you it didn't feel that way to those who were going to about to go through the Passion Week with Jesus. They didn't feel like Jesus was in control. To them, uh, to them, I'm sure things felt like they were actually swirling out of control. But meanwhile, all of it was working together according to his sovereign plan to provide us a sinless, once for all, substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And it's a, a glorious plan to behold. I would say simil- similarly to uh, seeing God's plan unfold here back in Jesus' first coming, we can be assured today in the midst of our own seemingly out-of-control circumstances that not only is God in control, but he is busy ushering history towards its eventual conclusion. He is busy unfolding his plan to this day. Actually heard my... uh, my friend and, and mentor and former pastor, uh, Randy Gilmore, online this week make this observation that, you know, we, we're, we're often quick to, to, to assure one another in this time that, that God is in control. God is in control, but, you know, for someone that maybe doesn't know the goodness of God uh, or, or really the, uh, the outworking of his plan, it's not enough just to know that God is in control because if God's in control, then why is this terrible thing happening to me? Right? We, need to, we need to also emphasize that, that God is in, not only in control, but that he has a plan and that it's good. And even though things seem out of control, even though things maybe seem tragic at times, God is doing his work. He is doing his plan. One day, perhaps soon, who knows, Jesus will return. And the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The Bible tells us that all things will be summed up in him. All his enemies will be finally destroyed and all his people will be completely saved and vindicated. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not making any predictions this morning about the timing of that end. I don't know if what we're going through right now is, is the beginning of the end or not. I, I would never want to make a, a claim to know that, but it could be. And all I'm, all I'm trying to say to you this morning is that there was a day where by the sovereign control and plan of God, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to offer himself as the Lamb of God for our, sli- our sins. And it was prophesied about in Zechariah 9.9 ahead of time. And he fulfilled it according to his plan and according to his power. And there's a, another prophecy in the book of Zechariah that speaks of another coming day when Jesus will once again touch his feet down on the Mount of Olives. And this time he will go through that same path he took in the first triumphal entry. He'll enter into the city, but this time it'll be in a different manner. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 and 5 says this. On that day, his feet, it's referring to Jesus, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that 
one half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. And then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. My friends, I can assure you that just as surely as Jesus fulfilled Zechariah 9.9, he will fulfill Zechariah 14.4-5 someday and maybe someday soon. Today we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the Lamb of God and we look ahead in eager anticipation to when he will ride in triumph once again into Jerusalem. This time not as the not just as the Lamb of God, but as the Lion of Judah, who shall surely overcome all things. Make no mistake, not only is God in control, but he is right now unfolding his perfect plan. Are you ready for his soon return? Or even perhaps for your sudden appearance before him? Do you believe in him? Let me encourage you today to see and to hear from God's word who Jesus is, the resurrection and the life, the Lamb of God who gave himself willingly to cover our sins. Repent of your sins, believe in him, trust in him, and he will save you in the end. Church, I want to encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray.